So we know of a we know of a farm in Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> Every summer, ideas are grown there. <laughs> Honestly, this the is more where ideas I, come from. The more I learn about the Aspen Institute, I'm the more I'm convinced that maybe it is where ideas come from. Yeah. <laughs> but fact. see, is it is it the strongest ideas that survive, or is it the ideas that had their <laughs> parents pay for them to go to Aspen? <laughs> We'll never well, know. Daddy Blackrock. <laughs> yeah, Ideas Festival, a co-production of the Aspen Institute, The Atlantic, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And even as a joke, it's painful to hear. (laughs) One of those jokes where you learn something truly deep and sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Please welcome back to the death panel, BFF of the show, Nathan Tankus, who is an economist, the author of the Notes on the Crisis substack, and also you are the research director for the Modern Money Network. Nathan, thank you for coming back. We're glad to have you. Great to be here, as always. <laughs> I'm really excited to get into this Aspen Institute report, which you wrote a beautifully scathing takedown of this week on your Substack. Um, it, was so, I, it was so choice. So good. Thank I you. think maybe one of the things I was thinking about is like, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, oh, great, full episode on economic policy, skip. Don't. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe don't do that. Don't do that. But for accessibility reasons, I figured maybe the best place to sort of start our conversation was to like actually back up to something that we've been talking about on the show a little bit for the past couple of months, which is like the Joe Biden economic advisory team, which is a black box, basically. So we don't know who is advising Um, his campaign. We know that Larry Summers is part of it, but um, this Schrodinger's Schrodinger's cat is Larry Summers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so we know that there are some people that we can sort of guess who are involved. I think it was our episode Endless Summers where we sort of broke down a like who we thought might be advising them. But as you wrote in your takedown of this uh, Aspen Institute report or you know proposal shall we call it is there a right technical term for what this is you know best like thing you would say would be a proposal a document <laughs> uh, a, PDF. Yeah. Um, a set of words that fall one after another yeah. in your takedown of this pdf shall mm-hmm. we say um you not merely a document but a portable document. <laughs> <laughs> you actually make a very good point that this this document in and of itself and the people it's coming from actually serve as a pretty good temperature check, I think is the word you use, on like sort of what the type of economic advice that we can sort of like maybe assume that the sort of democratic establishment and by extension Joe Biden's campaign are getting at the moment right now. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely the case. I think, you know, know, we can get into a little bit about the who's who uh, of this, but I think, you know, where it's coming from, you know, Robert Rubin is part of the broader economic strategy group and and also the co-authors. There's no doubt that these people have 
the Biden administration's ear. Now, whether now what exactly that means, it's difficult to say. But the, right. Right. this is this is something that the campaign has seen, looked through, had phone conversations. Oh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this group. It seems like just looking at their roster, which I think you sent us, is. I mean, it just looks to me like when you watch any of like those HBO movies about the Great Recession, it's like <laughs> these are all the people who are like it's like Hank Paulson, like Erskine Bowles. These are <laughs> these are deficit reduction people. So like whether or not like this is the Biden like dream team, they're like they got to be interspersed with. Mm-hmm. They have to be hanging out in the locker room, right? <laughs> right. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, also it kind of just represents also like this is the uh O'Courant, like think tank vibe right now anyways so it doesn't it almost doesn't matter if they're specifically on the policy team themselves or advisors because whoever's on will be looking to these folks for advice anyways i will say i think jason Furman is definitely on the team jason Furman, who was who is obama's last uh head of the council of economic advisors has like been doing stuff on um like had some like Documents he made put out right before the Obama administration ended on the quote unquote new view of fiscal policy and has been like in deeply involved in fiscal policy debates in the Democratic Party the last four years. I think if I was going to bet that any of these people were were involved in, in the Biden's economic policy team, I would absolutely bet that Furman is. He's maybe mm-hmm. a good, like maybe we actually should sort of go through who uh, who authored this PDF. And it is a crew of people. First up, we got... Our boy, Timothy Geithner, Uh, you know, a a, a special, special figure. Uh, I've always joked that, like, someone should make an update of the Hamilton uh, musical based around him. (laughs) Young guns uh, rising through the ranks, you know, you know, with without many, you know, without many credentials and, you know, but. But, you know, with that spirit to really get through and, you know, get to the highest reaches of power. And, you know, the Geithner rap would be <laughs> fantastic. So Timmy is Timmy's a special, special man. He, you know, was in, under the under the, uh, the second Bush administration was um, head of the New York Federal Reserve, which, you know, especially during a crisis time, he's like almost the most important position in the Federal Reserve. I mean, basically mm-hmm. goes you know, mm-hmm. Bernanke, and then like barely a step below uh, Timothy Geithner, uh, famously said that he was never a regulator, even though, you know, being in the New York Federal Reserve, you are actually a regulator. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, he's, he's, a, he's a special, special figure. And then, of course, you know, he uh, failed upwards from that to becoming Treasury Secretary, where he was, you know, in some ways, if you read the biographies of stuff of like things like the Special Inspector General of TARP, uh, Neil Borofsky's uh, biography, worse than Hank Paulson. Um, also involved in the economic strategy group, um, and he's very—he's most famous for saying that the point of HAMP, which was the homeowner relief program, was to "quote unquote" foam the runways for banks. Um, so, so because you need to space out the foreclosures because the banks can't handle the foreclosures uh, all at once, but Americans could handle experiencing eight to 10 million foreclosures and why should we stop any of those? Right. So he's, he's a special, he's a special, special uh, figure. And, you know, th- this is very much a, like a, an accumulation of, of people. So that's, that's Geithner. And then there's Glenn Hubbard. This is like the piece de resistance. Yeah. <laughs> this is, 
Uh, Hubbard is 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 very well. You know, he he was Council of Economic Advisors, designed the Bush tax cuts under Bush. You know, he's known for other things, but he's kind of most famous for being um, one of the economists pilloried in uh, the documentary Inside Job. Um, where he gets asked basic questions about co- corruption and conflict of interest, and he gets angry and like says, "You've got three minutes left. Yeah, give it your best shot." Um, um, does, he, like, does he like walk out of the inner? Is it like a walkout kind of situation? I don't remember if he like. He definitely like he, they he, got he, him he on is, stuff, didn't is. they? Yeah, yeah, they got him on stuff. You know, yeah, and he's you know he consulted with Country Ride saying everything was all good for like 1200 an hour or something like that. Um, <laughs> and, nailed it. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, he, he, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a very special thing. You know, as I joked on Twitter, was Frederick Michigan just not available? Uh, was the other guy in, the doc, in, the doc, in that documentary for, uh, getting paid by the Iceland chamber of commerce to say the banking system is stable. Um, and not putting that in any of the report that he was paid to say that. And oh and, and then it get later on his CV, it's the name of the report gets changed from financial stability in Iceland to financial instability in Iceland. Oh. So that if you're oh CV, you'd be like, oh, he, he saw that there was financial instability in Iceland. Right. Um, so so oh, I, I, think he, I think he must have just not been available or was like, you know, you know, couldn't be reached his, at his country home or something like that. And that's the only reason he wasn't involved. When you when you, when you schedule the orgy, it's like you're you're never gonna be able to get everybody you want to have there. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, there's always you know time conflicts. You know, you can just never get everyone all together. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Schedules never line up. So basically, I guess what we have here in this the uh, the Aspen Institute Economic Strategy Group's report uh, promoting economic recovery after COVID nineteen is let's say uh, the the gang of Veritable Suicide Squad getting back together for a real <laughs> redemption story, right? Yeah. Um, they're going to make up for all their past sins here, uh, right? Yeah, and then um, Furman has, like, you know, quasi-changed his views, but not much. Um, but as, you know, a colleague of mine, Alex Williams, who has said a lot in this report, mm-hmm. uh, writes in his dissertation, when Furman was at the beginning of the Obama administration, when he was just a member of the Council of Economic Advisors and not its chairman, uh, he was just obsessed with deficit reduction. He uh, was hmm. as soon as the initial stimulus happened, uh, he was advocating for like really cutting spending with the idea of like, ah, oh, we did what we needs to get to pump the economy up. Now it's time to uh, to cut, cut, cut. And even though, you know, this obviously has more stimulative stuff, you know, strengthening automatic stabilizers, which, you know, he and everyone else were missing in action on during uh, the Obama administration. This is this has more stuff. Even even here, he's you know clearly they're making choices that don't make economic sense that are purely for uh, like, well, we're going to increase the deficit, but not by too much. You know, as they say, mm-hmm. they're targeting this arbitrary 150 percent of GDP number. Well, the background <laughs> yeah. on this group, if, if I recall correctly, that this is part of the Aspen Institute, but it's this economic strategy group. Yeah, um, they their first report was in like back in 2017 and their whole thing i remember their like op-ed in the times was like we have to uh deal with the fact that uh capitalism is like not popular and they're like oh like the gallup poll shows that the kids don't like capitalism but then their whole then their whole like thing is like well 
we have to like strengthen capitalism uh, because it's it's good actually. Uh, and so it's just, and then and then they release this these series of reports in which they have like analyses of Medicare for all that are like two pages of just rehashing a CBO report, then two pages of like, I hypothesize without any evidence that like Medicare for all will reduce the quality of care. And then also (laughs) we could do these other things like making market competition work. And that's like the quality of their like top economists efforts uh, on just like to give the texture of this is like, this is, uh, this is just, yeah, it's pure ideology in a way. But it, it also it also feels like it has it, it incorporates the 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 scolding of like uh eat your vegetables kids into the pure ideology, which I, I think ton- tonally is uh is really needed, you know. <laughs> I wanna be condescended to well. It I'm is Aspen after all, you know yeah. what I mean? So it it fits, and so so we basically have the this trio of of really fantastic austerity hawks with great records, um, and then we have someone named Melissa Kearney. Who yeah, and, and, and Melissa Kearney is sort of like like it's weird because you know in other contexts she would be seen as like a very prominent person, like she's a she's a non resident senior fellow at Brookings. She was head of the Brookings Hamilton Project 2013 to 2015, but like in this crowd, given you know, given the the, the premature of all the other people, the fact that she's never been in government, um, and like she's she's sort of like a a lower tier down in terms of like economic policy influence, even though she's still like relatively a very influential economist, but she's also like a microeconomist. You know, she's like one of her most well known papers is like the effect of like the VH1 teenage pregnancy show like uh, on <laughs> teenage pregnancies. Wow. Uh, Real thought leader. Uh, it's like, incredibly micro. Yeah. You know, yeah. My, you know, the micro at its best, you know, Get, getting to the bottom of the, uh, the influence of cultural Marxism, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like I, so I, in the, in, in my document, you know, in, in, in what I was writing up, I sort of just like, didn't really deal with, with her or her work because she I mean clearly there's like specific details the operational details that I think she probably was very helpful on but like a lot of the macroeconomic stuff is stuff just drawing on previous work or watering down previous work and she's not a macroeconomist so I didn't really focus on her since I was mostly focused on the macro. Yeah I don't think really an analysis on um, 16 and pregnant really applies to this <laughs> in terms of providing some context. I feel like if you if you put Timothy Geithner, uh, Glenn Hubbard, uh, and Jason Furman in a room, they could figure out a connection. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, I would love to see like a Tim Geithner paper on sixteen and pregnant instead. <laughs> though I think that could be that could be groundbreaking. <laughs> sixteen and pregnant's influence on creating more workforce. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one of the things that they do in the beginning of the report is they break it down into like four sections. And I think what's great in your takedown is you actually basically throw that all out and say this is like not an amazing way for them to organize their ideas. And you break their four sections up actually into what are more realistically like 10 proposals that are part of their plan. Yeah, like I sort of get their the way they're organizing it. It's just like very confusing to be like one and these one has four sub points and then the next one just ha- doesn't have any sub points and the next one doesn't have any sub points but the next one also has four sub points it's just like <laughs> really hard to follow and i was like getting 
mix up my own head working on it. So I was just like, all right, I'm just going to make this 10 points. And obviously some of the points are very related to each other, but whatever. No, <laughs> I, I, it's funny because like after reading your uh, reorganization of their ideas, it makes a lot more sense the way that you organized it. And I was wondering if you thought that there was like a rhetorical reason why they might have sort of combined some of these things to try and make it seem like the whole thing was kind of like easy breezy four point solution kind of like very pitchy yeah i mean i think i think they, in their in their mind what they're seeing is we we don't actually care about any of our specific proposals this is just a broad point you know like if biden was repeating this obviously he wouldn't be running through the 10 points he'd be saying uh right. we're gonna provide income support for employed i mean unemployed i mean people uh vulnerable people you see and then like <laughs> runs, you know goes through the rest of them and then we're gonna we're gonna make we're gonna make sure that people want to work we're gonna we're gonna get them to work you know the problem is people haven't been wanting to indeed. yeah it does really feel like very pre-packaged to become talking points more than like actual actionable proposals. Exactly. I mean, should we maybe get into some of the meat of actually what's in their proposal? Yeah. What do you think? We were sort of talking about how there are a couple themes within what they're actually suggesting. So I guess we're going to take your 10 point plan and reconsolidate it. <laughs> <laughs> but sort of one of the first things that I, that I really noticed and that you point out in your piece is that there's a lot about getting back to work in their proposal. Oh, yeah. We're gonna, it seems uh, to actually be the central focus. Oh, yeah. Getting down to business. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's things like that that makes me think that 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 Biden that that they have a, like a, a strong voice in the Biden administration that like mm -hmm. by, you know in the way you've talked about they don't have any specifics but they've been focusing on this like you know work how to reopen safer crap um, right and so I think th this is clearly the economics component and they like I think you know I said that you know I think it's irresponsible without like a, a minimum commitment to OSHA to like right. strengthening OSHA to to put out stuff about incentivizing work. Um, but I think, you know, in their minds, they're just like, well, there's some other person who's responsible for the OSHA stuff, for the health and safety mm -hmm. stuff, not that kind of Yeah. As I was reading it, I mean, I, this this will be no surprise to like anybody who knows who any of these people are. But like, it, it's just funny how like quickly and obviously they betray that collectively, literally none of them have ever in their lives worked a low wage job in any context <laughs> <laughs> like you know when they talk about like incentivizing work you know and like and using hazard pay to do that right like they betrays the fact that like they have collectively never never even done like done an hourly job one day in their lives collectively between all of them. <laughs> Probably not even their children, TBH. I oh, mean, oh, certainly well, not their children. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> why do you think they? Why do you think they've they've uh, probably not even so their children's friends? Actually, uh, no, that like, would be what they're gonna have their children mingle with the pores. It's absurd. Yeah, no, I mean, they, you know, they, you know, the, the, yeah, because the normal time, you know, when a job is more dangerous, you get paid a premium relative to other, you know, 
a, a other wage you would get for a less dangerous job um, to work those jobs. And so, you right. know, that, that's, you know, that, that normal mechanism that definitely works all the time. <laughs> we're going to, um, <laughs> isn't going to work now for some reason. So uh, we're going to have, you know, the, you know, it, you, everybody knows that it's everyone's favorite policy in earned <laughs> income tax credit. Oh, boy. But this time it's a pandemic one. It's yeah. I also just, it is worth noting that just like everybody slaps P in front of everything now. And it's just like, <laughs> did we fix it? I can't wait till we get puby. <laughs> <laughs> but like they do, you know, there's, there's, as with all of these things, it's uh, the thing that makes it incredibly frustrating is that they take a something that's like a reasonable statement of a problem right. and then they attach it to something that legitimately does not fix that problem. Um, <laughs> but like what they say is, Okay, we have all of these people who have really not had the option of uh, leaving work or they're like they work in professions that or or uh, jobs that like have to go on grocery store employees, mm-hmm. uh, other occupations that are like, you know, just remain even during like crisis times. Uh, and those are high risk occupations. And so like we have to like, you know, obviously compensate people to some extent for the risk that they're taking. But then what they propose is, I don't know why this is, I don't know why the solution is not, let's maybe change what the base wage is in these fields, rather than we're just going to like use the power of the federal government to like give them money through the tax code. Like that doesn't seem, well, you like go into that? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, it, it's an essential, I mean, as, as I talked about in the piece, there's, there's two moves this piece makes. One is payroll protection would be a bad idea because <laughs> there's going to be, you know, industries or jobs which are going to permanently see, see less or no demand. Yeah. And thus, keeping people employed in these spaces would be economically inefficient. <laughs> and we need to reallocate <laughs> resources from those industries that we have no idea which of the industries are going to fail. But we're going to assume, assume that the demand falls during a depression like or well capture how we should reallocate our resources. <laughs> But then, and then that's why we should do things through unemployment insurance and yada yada. But then, okay, but then that's a problem because what if too many people get reallocated away from low wage work? And low right. wage work, where is normatively we we know it's essential. We we know it's essential right now, and that we need people in these low wage jobs. But you know, of course, we can't raise pay, especially because we're not providing payroll protection. So how, how are businesses going to afford this higher pay? So <laughs> we need to provide, so we need to not provide a subsidy to the businesses to pay higher pay or just directly pay people more. We need to provide an earned income tax credit that will incentivize people to work <laughs> low-wage jobs. And isn't it unfortunate that they're not going to get the pay until next year because it's a refundable tax credit. <laughs> so if it's administratively possible, let's figure out a way to pay them every three months uh, from there. You know, and if only there were some sort of uh, usable tax credit, like a negotiable tax credit that could be transferred from individual individuals, um, either with a physical piece of paper or transfers between between accounts mm. of some sort. Perhaps I, valid for all debts, public and private. Perhaps. <laughs> what would um, that be? And, and so, but but, but they'll, they'll get back to us. Let's see if they can invent that. Right. Uh, <laughs> one day. One day. Um, one day. Yeah. We'll, we'll have that kind of technology. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's this weird move, this weird counter move of like, 
we 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 need to reallocate resources efficiently but oh god no not like that yeah <laughs> yeah there are a number of like weird judgments that have also sort of been passed and and added to this whole system that they are proposing setting up which also involves like having some sort of regulatory way of deciding which businesses are good investments for the government almost uh like trying you know, a to free market Force, yeah, Sorry. force them to determine like which businesses will survive and deserve this like injection of of help, or which ones are not worth making this sort of investment in. Yeah, I, I so Nathan, t- tell me if I'm wrong, but B, I think I feel like what you're getting at is like the fact that these they seem to have a very strong opinion that like some businesses necessarily have to fail and some necessarily have to succeed because like the pandemic is going to fundamentally like reorder society but then they don't make any suggestions about like which those are yeah so i mean this is a fundamental i mean this is a fundamental problem with mainstream economists that like there is like a sense that there is a normatively desirable like distribution of resources across sectors but we can't mm-hmm. know what that is. At first, at first approximation, we can't know what that is. The market has to "quote unquote" determine that, you know. And you know, relative prices, which means like the price of you know item A relative in a ratio to item B, and so on, you know, will like determine how much of sales you will get across all those items. That will determine employment, and that will determine where resources are allocated. And so now we have this big relative price shift in their in their minds because of what's going on with COVID. And as a result, demand's going to shift everywhere. And as a result, you know, if you let the market work, quote unquote, resources are going to be <laughs> reallocated. Um, and and the payroll protection disrupts that process of resource reallocation. But of course, you know, they are policymakers. They can't actually, you know, believe their own bullshit fully because that's like you know that that has some nasty implications and one of the nasty implications is there's a whole bunch of essential work that where that would lose workers because people would just leave you know to work a better job or just not risk their lives for twelve dollars an hour whatever it is um and they 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 so they they have to like strip away their own you know love affair with the price mechanism to go actually okay price mechanism but we need to layer on top of it incentives for people to still work in uh, these low wage jobs um, right. and so right. like you know that I mean that's the, and that's the essential you know gimmick in terms of neoclassical economics is there's always a way to disfavor forms of coordination and forms of resource distribution that like leftists or liberals or whatever uh, like. Um, you know, using these sorts of arguments about efficiency, whatever, but you'll never actually allow that to apply to your own priorities. You know, there's always another earned income tax credit or whatever to incentivize low income, low wage work, low wage employment and, and, and push that forward. So like, I mean, that's, that's always the game. And you know, this is, you see this in a lot of places. My colleague Sanjit Tapal writes about this a lot, that there's this like, when you want to argue against labor coordination or like Uber drivers unionizing, you can always make a case that like they're they're you know leading to some inefficiency um, <laughs> through you know trying to raise their own wages, but and you know it's anti-competitive, blah blah blah. But of course, you know Uber setting the price on its drivers, that, you know on 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 its rides, that's no problem at all. And so we 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 have forms of coordination, forms of 
cooperation that we favor, which is you know firm based, hierarchical based, um, where we where we don't apply the, these reasonings around the price mechanism and efficiency and blah blah blah, um, or we come up with other sort of stilted things like oh well, there's productive efficiencies for that, so it's fine. Um, and then forms of coordination that you know benefit workers, benefit people at large. Um, you know, we we apply the full force of these other logics to them, and this this report right. in an interesting way uh, shows that that kind of logic happens in macroeconomics too, where we, you know, and and through this sort of like, oh, uh, you gotta let you gotta let the resources be distributed um, the way the market quote unquote wants, but then also we're gonna have income tax credits and other things to incentivize work. Right, and on the on the level of like the individual or the worker too, I think for this report, I mean, one of the things that I kind of almost admire about this. Uh, report is its lack of the sort of uh, vague platitudes that I feel like you see in a lot of like even things from like the Heritage Foundation or other stuff that we've like uh, covered mm-hmm. or, or dissected on the show actually even um, where they kind of like have to where, where as opposed to having an economic target the target is supposed to be sort of some sort of like vague political inference or something that people can campaign on and here you know quite nakedly they can say that yes in fact the reason that they do want to not for example again on the individual uh, level or the worker level like not uh extend the current unemployment insurance like the the mm-hmm. uh, P, uh the pua the uh pandemic unemployment uh, assurance, additional federal assistance, the extra $600. The reason they don't want to extend that is quite literally, quote, they want to avoid the scenario in which a worker receives more money from unemployment insurance than they would uh, than they were making on the job, which is not something that you're going to hear. I think they're I think like, you know, for example, if we're talking about a Biden team, you know, they're smart enough to at least not explicitly state that. But I think since this is like sort of happening in terms of like, oh, well, it's a reasonable argument from a macroeconomic perspective to say that you don't want (laughs) to like support people in, you know, uh, in the time of a pandemic. Well, but it's also it's also a bad, bad. I mean, as I said, it's a bad argument in the sense that like, you know, unemployment insurance sets this like standard setting for what a, a minimally reasonable paying job is the same way that minimum wage do and you know a job guarantee right. would do even better and so you know like what they're completely they're taking what's ha- the, the, the status quo as given it's like those jobs are just supposed to be paying lower than this amount right. it's like well i mean right. I thought, well i thought we believed in markets well you know market you get outbid you know you 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 make a higher bid so you're mm-hmm. getting outbid by unemployment insurance well then make a higher bid pay someone god forbid like 25 an hour or whatever that you needed to get right. them off the sidelines um like you 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 have the option to 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 pay better like and this is this is a debate that's been going on for years um in in, in macroeconomic policy because you hear immediately hear you know business or employers talk about shortage of, of workers for the last four or five years even though the labor market was still you know taking a long time to tighten and when you like drilled into any of the examples what they meant is that they're having trouble finding people to work at low wages and right. they've never considered <laughs> right. raising the wage because they've got used to things uh, you know over the last 20 30 years it's like i don't have to ever wage raises the last time anyone had to raise wages was like 1998 so 
I don't have to raise <laughs> wages to attract an employee. That's unfair. That's you know, that's communism. Like you know, that's, <laughs> well, yeah. So, but the Timothy Timothy Geithner definitely believes that like being a piece of shit employer is uh you know you're born with that that's not a choice that you make during your life <laughs> well, you, uh, he certainly knows from his own help. life <laughs> he certainly knows from his exactly. own life anything but to be a piece of shit he's just yeah. like grinding up and snorting thomas hobbs or something oh. <laughs> um, yeah i mean they have this like ridiculous base that sorry paragraph where they it's the only way i can do leviathan <laughs> yes they suggest that like really what's necessary is like nothing more than four hundred dollars because they don't want to dare get close to replacing more than a combined like 80 or 90 percent of someone's wages like back when I could work one of the things that I used to struggle to do was combine a bunch of low wage wage jobs together in order to make as close to six hundred dollars a week I could which was practically impossible even though I had four jobs like it's it's absolutely amazing to me that they're they're really just trying to continue with the logic that's like very much represents like pre-pandemic thinking and the kind of thinking that you could pass off as like which is ironic because they say explicitly in the report like it would be illogical to simply try to freeze in place the economy as it was pre-pandemic right yeah they're like lamenting the death of like the old world while they like fight to uphold it and it's quite it's quite fascinating to watch them attempt to justify this as anything other than you know we're intending to maintain this system of like wage-based power um Mm -hmm. and here is exactly how we plan to do it you know we are coming up on a pretty hard deadline as you point out in your takedown congress is not back yet they have not addressed many things and we're gonna have this expiring at on July 31st, I think it is, right? Yeah, federal pandemic unemployment compensation expires July 31st, and there is currently, like, no plan for what next. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the... The Congress seems, like, completely out to lunch in this. And in fact, I would say Congress is being much more blasé and taking this much less seriously than yeah. even these establishment econo- <laughs> economists are and establishment economists are in general. Like I can be critical as I want mm-hmm. about King Tim Geithner and, 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 and Jason Furman or Jason Furman. But the reality is if they were deciding economic policy, even with as shitty as this report is, <laughs> things would be better right now. They would be immeasurably better. Yeah. That's the really scary thing is that like, if yeah. you look at, and it's not just what Congress hasn't done it's what isn't even on the agenda uh, in Congress. So, like, for example, the just like the idea of having some sort of adjustment or automatic stabilizer like built into like Medicaid and unemployment insurance. Like, it's not that uh, like Congress considered something along the lines that, that these guys are proposing and then just like decided not to do it. It's like that's not even in the hopper. Uh, like the, this, the, this I, I, the I know, idea that I know that from from some background that there have been um, Democrats that have been there have been people who've been in the background pushing Democrats on on making on including employment uh, unemployment triggers in in expanded unemployment insurance. But, but it's, it's gone nowhere. But it's not something that like, yeah, I was gonna say it's not something like Nancy Pelosi or like the leadership has. You would think that like a month before this critical deadline comes up. And by the way in a month where most of Congress's business is going to be taken up by 
12 appropriations bills. Mm. Uh, right. mm-hmm. You would think that they might like, I don't know, put a little bit of advance on that. Um, well, I mean, in because fact, it's certainly Pelosi the case that like explicitly yeah. said that she pulled unemployment triggers and like automatic state well, they what they call automatic stabilizers, but like unemployment trigger stuff from mm-hmm. um the Heroes Act because it mm-hmm. got such a bad CBO score. <laughs> which aye, aye, aye. Is, drives, which 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 it drives me absolutely insane because the whole thing about things contingent uh, policies like unemployment insurance triggers and and things like that is that they're based on the prop like the CBO has some like probability of them being triggered calculation that it does and if they a year ago passed unemployment triggers it would have had almost <laughs> no CBO score uh, right but then, exactly like and, and 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 but if but now because we're in the depression, it's much more likely. But it would have been what? CBO scores. This is, I mean, this is what I was talking about. Like, right. a few ago, <laughs> in my mind that like if we had done like unemployment trigger, like uh, uh, unemployment trigger uh, for like or like black unemployment trigger for reparations, it right. would have gotten right. almost no right. or no uh, CBO score because of the probability of that high unemployment rate or that high unemployment rate in the black community. And we would have reparations right now. Right. <laughs> the other thing is like, I, you know, the like the the whole I remember us covering that when that happened, which is like I, I think our takeaway was um, Congress is the master of the CBO it controls the CBO's budget. It can literally write into legislation. Don't score this. Right. Um, it, it, that is entirely possible. And so it's just, it was, it seemed completely disingenuous of her to say, I mean, not just disingenuous, it's just like, like it very revelatory of her actual preferences. Yeah. Well, and, right. And, and beyond even the fact that like, it makes obvious sense to address crises that are in front of you when you are a legislative body, it would be the right political move because we're about to come up to an election cycle right. and the the like the four-dimensional chess just like doesn't make any fucking sense to me you know one thing i'm curious to ask you about nathan actually on this is um yeah, in, while we're talking about yeah, automatic stabilizers or autonomous stabilizers i guess you mentioned um that the report from aspen institute i think uh let me quote you exactly the whole report strangely neglects claudia Sam's pioneering work do you think you could explain what the SOM rule is for our listeners and maybe get into a little bit why her work is a, a better uh, measure, a much superior way of implementing or triggering autom- uh, sorry, autonomous stabilizers? Sure. So, I mean, I think the background before we even get to the definition is one of the big problems with doing these types of things where you want a special policy that happens when a recession is starting is knowing when a recession starts. We actually have right. not had very good tools for that. There's a committee, a private committee of of the National Bureau of Economic Research, which, mm-hmm. like, based on the the, the, the definition of, of a recession where uh, GDP falls for two consecutive quarters, i.e. six months, um, that they will, after the fact, determine that a recession has happened. But, like, they'll decide it, like – almost a year after the fact, which is not helpful for like making a policy. Like you couldn't make right. it when the NBER declares a recession, you couldn't build that into, uh, in, into legislation. Um, and so there, I mean, the second piece here is that economists in generally have been neglecting this idea altogether. Economists have been like, well, monetary policy will respond to things. So we don't need to come up with, um, 
with with measures that will like provide <laughs> us automatic triggers. America um, is already great. <laughs> American economic policy is already great. Has been the view for like the last like three plus decades or so. Um, there, there was in the in the 1950s and 60s. There was a whole argument around around these these issues. There was what was called flexible formula um, uh, policy, which was basically the kind of thing that that I'm talking about here. But you know, once you once you go from the downturn from the high period, the high mark period of of technocratic Keynesian Keynesianism, where already there were people who thought they were smart enough to be able to do things in real time. Like they, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the high part of, 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 of that, of that period was just like discretionarily having Congress pass a tax cut, um, which was the Kennedy tax cuts. Um, so they, they've never really, you know, taken seriously, you know, super seriously having this bigger architecture. Although you had like some discussions about, what they call flexible, flexible formula. And then once you have like the monetarist revolution and the post-monetarism where um, interest rate policy can do everything, um, all this stuff sort of just got left to the side. And it's just something weird, uh, heterodox people would talk about up until the last like four or five years or so when people really like finally took seriously the idea that, okay, well, we don't want to trust Congress having to discretionarily pass a bill, but we need, do need fiscal policy. What we can, can what can we do? Mm-hmm. And this sort of thing started to be thought of um, more seriously. And in that mm-hmm. process, you know, one of the big, you know, hallmarks of, of of that process was this book that came out last year from the Brookings Institution called Recession Ready that had a whole you know set of, of work around like how to make uh, fiscal policy more uh, counter cyclical. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they, you know, as we can get into, they, they did a lot of like uh, lukewarm stuff in that. But one of the chapters was Claudia Sam's chapter about basically uh, automatically setting up emergency cash payments to go out the door um, when a recession has happened. But of course, you know, then we still have this problem of of what to trigger it and what she came up with, which is based on her experience. So the, the, the dirty secret in this area is that because the Federal Reserve has needed to respond quickly to recessions and because people on Wall Street have needed to like want to have a sense of when a recession is happening, there has been work that has been done, you know, that where you could pretty strongly t- tell whether a, a recession was happening. Um, hmm. It just hasn't been public. Um, so if you, if you had like <laughs> private subscriptions to like uh, to like Wall Street newsletters, um, you can you could find similar, although not exact, things to what what Claudia Claudia is talking about, um, and the and it was sort of like no one knew exactly. It was sort of, but there was sort of like a rough rule of thumb that was sort of similar to uh, Claudia Sam's work within the Fed. They like roughly had a sense of something that she was talking about. So like, and that brings us, and but she, did, you know, she has a lot of experience as being a macroeconomic forecaster. She you know, joined up at the Fed doing macroeconomic forecasting um, in January 2008, which is a hell of a time to become mm-hmm. a macroeconomic forecaster, um, which I think, you know, I think has really guided her her experience. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of Claudia's, um, even even yeah. though she's an establishment figure in some ways, um, in a lot of ways. Um, um, she So she has this, you know, chapter where she did a lot of work playing around to find a measure that not only would like roughly tell you that a recession is happening, but with U.S. data would always tell you that a recession has happened, but never give a false positive. And so in, in, in playing around, what she comes up with is 
So there's there's these three month moving averages of the unemployment rate, mm-hmm. and you can compare the three month moving average to three month moving averages from the previous year, and you can tell that in her you can tell in her her view that a recession is happening when when the three month average has moved half a percent up. So right. you either get mm-hmm. you know so what will either happen is the unemployment rate will jump up a ton in one month which will be so powerful it will have um, moved the entire three-month index efficiently to tell you there was a recession, which is what happens with the, with the coronavirus depression, which was so rapid and quick. And then, and then you know, a, a slower-moving recession, it might take the average to move up a couple months. Like, you, you might be two mm-hmm. months in um, of rising unemployment before you realize there's a recession. But two, that two months in rise is much, much, much faster than right. uh, six months mm-hmm. You know that you figure out well after the fact. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it strikes me as immediately like a better way to have to avoid, you know, austere budget cuts at the state and local level, which we saw both in 2008 and we're seeing now during COVID as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and in fact, and, 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 and it's and it's and it's not only like federal policy is better, but actually state policy. As much as state policy is financially constrained, mm-hmm. they still have things that are tied to unemployment. And this tells you that you're you're in a in a recession and can you know like like apparently it was almost as soon as this came out, like uh, state level government started tying some of their policies to the SOM the SOM measure. Right, and it's but I think the thing that like the we could just like talk about okay these different ways of knowing when a recession is happening and like it sounds kind of technical but it the the bottom line is the ideas that inform the thinking in this report mean that like like have these implications that from a perspective of somebody who's actually a city manager in you know uh Ozaki County Wisconsin it, are just like absurd or like a, a school board president in suburban Milwaukee uh, are absurd. So it's like the the funding for state and local governments that they propose is a block grant of five hundred billion dollars <laughs> to be split between state and local governments over oh two God. years. So 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 a couple things on this. Like one, like the the revenue laws is already projected to be like upwards of one point one trillion. Yeah. So that's less than half of that. And then and then the idea is like, oh yeah, they'll just split it. So if you know anything about how like any kind of revenue sharing proposal like works or even just like what's happened with the CARES Act, like the states get the money and then they're like, yeah, local governments. uh, Yeah. You know, we'll talk. We'll talk later. We'll talk like Mm -hmm. there's no splitting. They they don't even realize like you might want to have like two pots of money like this is just so. I mean, we've talked about this being like pure ideology in the sense that they can't. There's no conceptualization of like what this would mean for a worker. But. It's also just completely uh, irrespective of like or has no perspective on like what it is to manage a state and local government under a period of austerity. And, and like there's no sense of like how many uh, emergency EMS uh, calls would have to be like cut short or mm-hmm. it's just like really when when you're like working at this level, ooh, five hundred billion dollars sounds like a lot of money. But uh, <laughs> local governments are already cutting like essential Services like bus routes are going to be cut. This is right. uh, just like uh, already going to become like in three to four months, we're going to see austerity of a type that we've probably maybe never seen before, even during the Great Recession. And they're like, hey, you know, five hundred billion dollars like and and oh, yeah, like we'll we'll trigger like uh, an, an increase in, in unemployment, like under some like fairly like rarefied 
uh, conditions. It's just, um, right. I, I keep thinking like, what is, what is at the heart of the, cause you kind of divide it up into the good, the bad and the ugly. Although the good has a lot of bad in it too. <laughs> um, like um, the thing I kept wondering is like, what is at the heart of the, the, just the offshoot here? Like one interpretation would just be, Oh, maybe it's just, uh, you know, just a lack of creativity, but clearly like there's some sort of creativity. It's just a dark creativity, but like, why, why, like, do they, do they like austerity in the state and local governments? They think that's a good thing. Like, is that, that, is that what they want? Well, I'm, I'm going to make, I'm going to make as meek as defense as I probably could, like, like some half defense, um, in terms of like what I could put in the good is, um, yeah, that what their stuff is inadequate and there's, you know, what the, in, in their own admission, they're talking about moderate and quote unquote moderate and quote unquote small cuts rather than large cuts um, or draconian cuts is, they, is the term they use. But it's still, you know, a lot more than a lot of what everyone else is talking about. I mean, they're, tra- you know, they're, they're talking about only making up partial K to 12 funding and um, higher education funding, but like that's not on the table at all in terms of specific block granting for K to twelve, and they're also providing money for the general fund. So they're, they're, these are these you know right. proposals. You know they're promoting money f- towards the general funds, which like you know supposedly can't be put towards pension uh, increases or tax cuts, um, and they're putting money to K to twelve, and they're putting money to higher education. That's a lot more than we're seeing you know coming out of Congress. Now, I think it should be more. I think it should be it, – it's weird to me, as I say in the piece, that it's not tied to unemployment triggers. Like, you know, mm-hmm. why not tie it to unemployment triggers and the elevated unemployment rates the same way that you would um, for the unemployment insurance? Um, but it's a lot more than what's what's going on right now. And, you know, even though this would still be state and local austerity based on what they're putting out there, it would be state and local austerity. It really would be state and local austerity on a smaller scale than what we're seeing now. And I, I agree you about state versus um, versus local. But even the, to me, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just so like uh, pessimistic and, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> sure. right now. But like the fact that, any, that, that the people of their pedigree are talking specifically about block grants for general fund and K to 12 and higher education feels like a feels like, like much further, much, much bigger in terms of reversing state and local austerity than um, anything else we're saying. Yeah. I guess just sort of like it, the fact that that's, what's filling this space. I mean, I agree with you, like the sort of, you know, sort of sad fact, I suppose, is that this is more than what Congress is even is even like on the agenda right now and like that we're going to see by by July. So like, OK, I guess in one sense, you know, the people, at, the good people at the National League of Cities should be like jumping uh, for joy. But in the other sense, it's like, I guess I just it, I lament the fact that it's these people who are setting the agenda right now and not the people who are actually going to have to do the dirty work of like, you know, uh, announcing to the people who live in their city that I'm sorry, you know, we will be having to cut several very vital bus lines and, you know, it's just mm-hmm. going to be a lot harder for you to get to work. Like I, I lament the fact that it's not those people whose voices are like dominating the conversation. It's these people who I, I'm not even sure that they've been on a bus. They've definitely done like, like a press op 
like you know like you know special <laughs> special vote like see isn't it cute seeing timothy geithner on a bus like that that certainly happened i'm sure someone right. like, I'm sure yeah. there's a girl who's like taking a picture of them like posing on a bus where for some reason they're the only people on the bus so like come in the on, netherlands <laughs> well, I, I guess maybe when i you know when i hear like what phil's talking about i i literally just wonder whether it's almost that like this this analysis of uh like that their macroeconomic policy provisions are a sen- are almost like willfully ignoring <laughs> or possibly ignorant of the actual like the the like actual operations of american federalism perhaps because i mean <laughs> for instance the even the like the the not splitting the the local and state uh, provisions into like two buckets just makes me think of like you know literally every time i mean even like even like you, you ask the average new yorker off the street um about like the mta for example mm-hmm. and they will understand that it's at least the at bare minimum they will they will understand that there is like a contentious long going struggle between you know the governor and the mayor whoever mm-hmm. those people happen to be but you know uh but like between the governor and the mayor or like albany and new york city over who's how, responsible yeah who's actually yeah. Fiz- yeah who's actually responsible for that and you know the the provision of th- like how those things get meted out is always like not only a contentious thing but always for like some sort of, it almost always redounds to like some sort of political benefit as opposed to any sort of like economic stabilization that they may mm-hmm. fantasize is going to happen does that yeah. make sense yeah i mean it, it does it does often seem like in a lot of ways like the commitment to maintaining at least some level of austerity policy is all about making sure that power mean like stays gate kept the way that it, it people think it should be you know it's it's like if you want to make sure that governors have enough power under your system you you have to essentially build it this way so that municipalities don't gain leverage over like the state government right because if you were to if you were to t- <laughs> do so. it differently maybe that's why then like no one would have to play ball with Cuomo if they could like deal with their own municipal budgets and not cut their local school systems but if Cuomo is going to take away the state money then like it I mean we're seeing it with like how New York's going after or will be going after Medicaid and education spending, I think in the, Mm -hmm. in the coming year as well. Um, And as you point out in your, in previous newsletters or or pieces that you've written, Nathan, it's not like we've really had a chance to recover from the austerity that was imposed during the great recession, both in terms of like returning back to the job market before or um, state and local budgets being what they were or getting back close to what they were. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, 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 we're still, you know, these are the lagging indicators, as they say, of, you know, of, of recovery. <laughs> and, you know, they, they, there was very little done to support state and local budgets uh, during the Great Recession, um, you know, pathetic amount, um, even, you know, and then, you know, so that has meant that like a lot of what that recession was about was, was cutting employment at state and local level and hasn't really recovered all that much um, up until mm-hmm. now. And now we're going to get a like, huge including in public health departments, right? I mean, that's that's my favorite right. uh, statistic from like the yeah the the lo- job loss in public health departments and after the Great Recession really helping us out now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but but don't worry, they have a plan for this. They're gonna mm. you know they're gonna tie a measure that will automatically increase. The federal share of CHIP and Medicaid funding, uh, you know, it's based on the state of the economy. Our saviors. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, they don't 
they don't have a great plan for that either, do they? Oh, no, um, well, come on, come on. You got to see, you know, both programs would have their federal coverage of their funding increased by 4.8 percentage points for every oh point increase in the state's unemployment rate above a certain threshold with a cap at 90% reimbursement rate. So. I mean, how does that not just excite you? Are you not entertained? <laughs> when you get caught between the moon and New York City, the best that you can do is fall in love. You know, <laughs> the way I think about this, like, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So should we get into the ugly? Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe we're we already there. Get, you want to yeah. get into the really gross stuff? Um, so beyond like fucking with Medicaid, they're also going to fuck with CHIP, which is really, mm-hmm. really important right now. And basically the only way children's that children's health insurance program. Yeah. The only way that low income children get access to health care in this country, essentially, other than like the charity circuit is already pretty poorly funded and they don't really have some any great ideas on what to do with it but they do want to make sure that in all of their sort of things that they're designing to support like healthcare spending that they don't do anything to step on private insurance and you point out that actually you know some of the people who uh, participate in the economic strategy group actually are involved in uh, health finance they are like people who work for Blue Cross Blue Shield the CEO of uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina (sighs) Woo, fun. I mean, and you talk, uh, you talk about how like when uh, when establishment economists approach dealing with health finance, they tend to um, always sort of have preferential treatment towards the private insurance market. And in this sort of pandemic response proposal, they're also very much favoring ideas that would allow that um, situation to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as they, and as they say, they, they're sort of neglecting health health uh, care altogether. Like they, they say, oh, it's so important. Hey, the health response is so important. You got to fund that stuff. Um, and there's, you know, as they say, such spending has potentially enormous returns in lives saved and in accelerating the return of economic activity to normal levels. And you can almost hear which one they see as like where the enormous returns come from um mm-hmm. like you know lives you know what but you know we got a couple million per life that we save whatever you know mm-hmm. that we, we, that cost benefit analysis that's fine it's nice but it's not it's not great but getting to economic activity uh normal levels quicker that's where the real money's in um <laughs> and and they just say and they anonymously say which i'm lo- really looking forward to many other experts and groups are working on these issues so we do not want to make any specific proposals on these topics in this report <laughs> which of course is like completely insane if you're talking if you're actually talking about economic recovery like what possible economic recovery could you have without having like a specific and concrete like healthcare spending proposals like and it's also not as if like they don't they aren't part of those groups or could have incorporated somebody from those groups into writing about it if they actually cared about it um (laughs) but uh you know that that's sort of indicative but the other sort of like very telling thing for me was that the proposal is okay again kind of sad that it's better than what congress has done i agree Uh, you know, but at the same time, the other sort of like notable aspect of it is their proposal is just adjusting the matching rate to the states, uh, Mm -hmm. based on the, uh, based on the the state of the economy. Exactly. It has nothing, Mm -hmm. it has nothing to say about eligibility. 
Yep. Which is kind <laughs> of, you would think this is one of the major issues that people face. They, they lose their job and then it's not like when you lose your job, I think people like, this is also something that's very, very misunderstood. It's not like when you lose your job and have no income for a couple of months, you automatically become eligible for Medicaid. Right. That's right, not right. how it works. And so they have nothing to say about eligibility here at all. Uh, so, I mean, again, it's just sort of like a, you know, turn crank. Right. Uh, and, to, and to make that more explicit, too, it's since I mean, I think a, a dedicated death panel listener will probably know a lot of this. But if this is, say, your first one, uh, <laughs> hi, welcome. But also, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, even in this proposal, they say like uh, like for for SNAP, for example, the, that um, states should suspend all work requirements for SNAP during How the generous. pandemic. And then, but always that phrase, that fucking phrase during the pandemic is like where it really gets you because it's like, <laughs> and as you point out, Nathan, you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to, if, if you think that making the argument suspending something during a pandemic is morally good, then like all of those statements are equally and more morally good to just say in general, you should stop like work yeah. requirements for example and this, and this, right. this, this, this is this um, has been a long-standing bug bugbear of mine one that one of the chapters in the recession ready book is about suspending work requirements for food stamps because oh it's not because you know they don't have an incentive to work it's just because they can't find a job which of course everyone knows that that is true but anyone who's on food stamps at any time, especially if you're right, yeah. black in this country when you're experiencing recession at any time. Um, it's, 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 it, you know, as I say, it's the thing that really, you know, got me angry and continually gets me angry when people make these proposals. Like, no, if you, and, and this is, and that's the other thing is that it does a better job of what you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't yeah. means test it, then, like, automatically have take up when people need it. People will need it more in recessions or more when the economy is bad. So that those are the times where they will, they will take it up more. It will automatically provide that benefit. The same way Medicare for All will automatically provide that yeah. benefit where you're going to get right. more spending during a pandemic automatically because we have spending on everyone at any time. And you're going to, yeah. you know, and you're going to get your, and when people lose their jobs, people will just have health insurance rather than just losing losing their health insurance like right. it's actually like mm-hmm. macroeconomically functions better than what they than all the convoluted bullshit that they're talking about but mm-hmm. like it's it's it, it, it's goes completely against the way that they think about uh economic policy it's too left wing it also like undermines like this sort of like well we can't really have nice things sort of politics that they <laughs> yeah. and as you know as as crises keep on happening they have to keep on moving the goalposts so now you know no one in this world would ever be proposing we're our goal is 150 percent uh um na- national debt to gdp but because we're responding to pandemic and they have to respond provide some sort of fiscal policy then they have to propose it but of course right. since it's possible now then going up to like you know 40 percent less than that was possible um during the great recession and during the great recession you could have actually had a full response that would have brought the economy back to full employment which they're implicitly me uh, admitting now and then when we right. have a crisis after the coronavirus depression they'll be like oh well we're we're going to target 200% of GDP, but don't worry. Those MMT people are still crazy. All of this makes more sense. If you th- they put out a book, this economic strategy group, they put out a book last year, November of last year called maintaining the strength of American capitalism. <laughs> and their whole yeah. thing is like, how do we get Americans to love capitalism again? 
And every single chapter, it's, and it's not, the answer to that question is not like even going back to commercial sort of Keynesianism where we had like, even like a hint that maybe we'll, we'll try to guarantee public jobs or, 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 Mm -hmm. or like a Nixonian universal healthcare thing Mm -hmm. in every single chapter. It's, we can't have a UBI. Definitely can't do that. Can't have Medicare for all. Definitely can't do that. Uh, Can't have a wealth tax or, or anything like that. Definitely can't do that. Uh, And we have to reduce the, the national debt, uh, with, with quote, some combination of spending cuts and tax increases. So like, I don't know who their marketing person is, but like if the goal is to quote, get Americans to love capitalism again, your whole, the whole like strategy is we'll just do more of the things that well, people hate and yeah. then they'll love it more. Cause we'll they're just like, we'll be like the mean, open, bitchy friend. Hold their eyes open and just play flash across the screen, uh, spending cuts and tax increases, spending cuts and tax increases. And eventually they'll love it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, this, and I think this is why I, I wanted to to bring up and be more explicit about the like the uh, Medicaid thing because it is telling that in this report, again, the sort of like the lack of platitudes and the pure ideology of it all in this report, they will say like during a pandemic, suspend work requirements for SNAP. They will not, however, say during a pandemic, suspend work requirements for Medicaid. They will not say during a pandemic or at all. But like obviously, you know, again. I don't think they've even thought of work requirements during Medicaid. And they would not say um, for Medicaid during a pandemic, suspend uh, caps on the uh, assets, like suspend asset caps. Right. You know yeah, what I mean? That's right. Yeah. Like they won't they won't say like, OK, it's, it's good enough if you're if you're unemployed and extremely poor. If you happen to have a car mm-hmm. or own a house or if uh, you're sleeping or, on someone's couch. Right. Exactly. Or, or whatever, what have you, if you have assets above X amount, like, sorry, Medicaid's not for you. They like they won't even go that far, which, yeah, I think you're you're. I think you guys are right. It's like, you know, ignore, like ignoring it at all. Like not even. Yeah, I, I, I think those. literally they've never thought about Medicaid and they've never thought about <laughs> its details. So I literally think they don't know the details of eligibility of Medicaid for them to even consider relaxing uh, the like eligibility requirements. Right. Well, isn't it isn't it possible that they just that they know something about Medicaid, but they view Medicaid not as a program for making sure that people have health care, but they see it as purely like with all of those. It just reminds me of like the thing like a, jur- a Prussian forester sees trees not as like part of a forest, but as like cords of wood that can then be sold um, <laughs> right. like the yeah, they see it simply as this sort of macroeconomic instrument rather than like a program that helps people like get prescriptions that they need. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God forbid. It's interesting because one of the things that there's only also one mention of either SSI or SSDI in their report um, where they talk about it in the context of the unemployment insurance and whether or not to sort of extend that. And they frame it as this sort of like binary of either we provide some sort of like meager extension to force people from like force people to sort of stay tangentially into the labor force because if we don't they will all enroll in federal disability which they (laughs) act like it's like going to get a driver's license or something like you know what i mean right they're they're framing it as if like oh if we don't subsidize fuel people will stop buying cars you know like if we (laughs) 
if we don't make sure that these people are at least getting something, they'll drop out entirely and just become disabled. And it's funny because it's like oftentimes this sort of like dichotomy of like slipping between unemployment and disability is used also as a way to advocate for UBI, as we've seen with with like Andrew Yang and all those sort of people and a lot of like the the right argument for UBI. But we're also seeing it essentially now used right wing against it. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think that the yeah, I think the I, I really, you know, knowing these people, I think no one except maybe Melissa Kearney and even that um, like really understands the details of these programs. So I think I really think they just like they don't know about it. And so with, like with with that um, that citation to disability, you know, there, there's been work um, in the last uh, few years showing that there is some counter cyclicality in disability that you know people you know people do get on disability more in recessions and so they're just taking that as like oh that's a problem um rather than (laughs) like rather than like thinking well like okay yes more people are getting on disability in recessions but like think about how screwed everything is that they do that um Mm -hmm. or how hard or that like how hard it is to get off disability is is about how viciously means tested it is like they don't mm-hmm. they don't actually understand the details that like no people aren't like it's like i think you know you know they're economists so they think oh well people like aren't you know not really disabled or like you know uh running the system or whatever it is mm-hmm. when like in reality what's happening is you know, besides people who are just like actually genuinely like like th- there's things that happen while they're on extended unemployment that eventually lead them um to, to needing disability um that people are like already very injured and they're and they they're trying to survive in other ways and then they eventually you know you know go to get disability after they've like exhausted all of those other options but they were very much disabled and injured before that they just like you know mm-hmm. this program just sucks so much that right. you don't just mm-hmm. immediately go to it um you know, and then, you know, yeah, and you get your life surveilled. It's 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 atrocious. Um, well, and beyond that, like the approval rates for uh, SSDI for people uh, seeking benefits for chronic drug addiction, as it's framed in the blue book, are d- dramatically low. Meanwhile, you have yeah, like, like multi- a totally phantom uh, problem. Right. Yeah. You have multiple demographic studies showing that when we start to enter a recession, people start taking lower paid, more dangerous work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, also, and and also, as we've seen, again, because we don't have a single payer system or a national health system or, or any sort of thing like that when people either lose their jobs or or in general maybe like are like maybe don't lose their jobs or are making less money mm-hmm. often then people like i mean what happened during the great recession uh, other than and what is happening very dramatically now because it's paired with a pandemic but like what happened during the great recession is like people a lot of people stopped uh, seeking necessary care mm-hmm. basically which like yes. if you have right. an underlying health condition will exacerbate it and could like create a condition where needlessly essentially because you don't have a single payer system the state has rendered you disabled basically mm-hmm. yeah. you know right. what I mean and because there was an effective uh, response to the recession yeah I mean and it's not like there is also like the possibility that literally just the types of employment themselves that are being forced onto people because of like financial hardship are not also like the direct cause of why they need to apply for disability a good example is like an old 
a professor of mine, um, his son teaches like math uh, at a community college, but also is a short haul trucker at night. So between basically hopping between like four community college campuses to teach, um, he is like full time faculty, by the way, and uh, trucking. This guy completely messed up his back, has nerve damage so bad he can't feel his feet, you know, and got in a car accident because he hadn't been sleeping in three days because he works two jobs and sometimes has to pull double shifts. Like, if if we can't accommodate the fact that the uh, sort of that people's job conditions directly creates disability in the process of a disability certification application, I don't think we're ever going to be able to like actually support or provide any sort of meaningful backup for people who absolutely have no other choice other than to just completely give their bodies over to the job market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which isn't that what they advocate for? (laughs) Basically. Yeah. yeah, this is yeah in big bold type. This report is basically people give your bodies over to the job market, <laughs> right? Um, but there'll but there'll be a pandemic earned income tax credit at the end. Whoop, whoop. That's the other thing that's like that's, that, that that drives me crazy about this is that the, there's no discussion at all that if you're banking on getting a pandemic earned income tax credit at the end of this, that if you die six months in. You're not like you, you or your like family is not going to get like that pandemic earned income tax credit. Like they're they're not even thinking about like okay, well you need like money in a trust or whatever, or like you need just immediate right. payments, you know, payments with actual tax credits that go into your bank account. Um, like that 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 is actually like if you want to incentivize anything, that's important to it because you know the banking on a on a tax credit a year from now when you could fucking die is insane hey. and well, like and imagine trying to do however, taxes. the funeral costs do add to gdp <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the funniest part too is that they're like they even say in their document that like yeah so these uh these incentives are like not particularly uh useful or incentivizing and then they complain later like Oh, why aren't they why aren't they incentivizing them? Come on. It's just it on some level it feels sort of like lazy and whiny. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess you know one way of I, I want to like push this because we we've spent a long time like going through this uh report and I I think Nathan your analysis is definitely like everyone should should read it not only because like this report is probably going to be you know, uh, in one way or another hacked up and, and part of the like policy discussion now in the, you know, pseudo Biden administration. But like the your, your analysis is like really good and illustrates like what's wrong with these ideas in a more general way, which is why I wanted to sort of ask you the question, you know, what sort of what is the sort of opportunity structure for like smashing these ideas uh you know, more broadly and publicly, because I mean, in a sense, one problem is that is not just that these are bad ideas, but that they're bad ideas wired into a network that will assuredly be part of the Council of Economic Advisors and the Fed and Treasury. And I mean, basically all of the institutions that we really like, in a sense, that matter and certainly in Congress. So, (laughs) so I mean, you know, like, Yes, I think we should like obviously telegraph how how bad these things are, but like how do we how do we deal with the fact that 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 they're connected to people who have this sort of um 
sort of institutional leverage um, to to advance their continuously bad ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing is just we got to put out other ideas. One one um, you know you know positive thing is if you think about um, like the things, some of the stuff they criticize. Well, six hundred dollars a month uh, additional unemployment insurance did get through Congress. Like that did happen, and mm-hmm. you know, God God help them. Michael Bennett's office did that. Um, and you know that that's an interesting example, by the way, how sometimes you can have a milk toast Democrat, and they can be more effective than a leftist because they have a really good staff. And Michael Bennett's staff, God love them, mm. are are actually very good, um, and are serious in taking paying attention to 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 good macroeconomic ideas, um, and paying attention to other to to other places. Um, mm-hmm. One thing is you know, is to put out alternatives. You know, I'm 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 friends with to the left of, but still friends with people at Employ America. My colleague, who I cited a lot, uh, Alex Williams, had had a, a medium post uh, that, that Employ America um, put out um, on you know on intergovernmental autonomous stabilizers. Um, you know, based on his master's thesis that um, is getting some attention, and, and they can get they get real attention in Congress. They're able to talk to staffers. And, mm-hmm. you know, they've, they've, you know, they've been able to push on things before. Um, so I think, you know, putting out more and better and, uh, stuff all the time. I mean, partially what I wrote, wrote this is so that it could be something that could be sent around among staffers, um, which I, I, I would suspect that it, that it is getting, getting a certain amount of play behind the seats among staffers. Um, and some people in the government, you know, based on, you know, I, I know who was on my email list. So, uh, <laughs> nice. okay. Uh, um, and as you know, so that's part, partly of what it, my motivation for writing it, um, was, was knowing that I could get in front of, uh, some people, you know, Claudia Sam positively tweeted out, uh, my piece. And so I, I suspect it's nice. getting some play, although I want to, I want to push it out to some other areas as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the biggest thing is just putting out our own, kind of big think alternatives are is 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 the best thing that you can do i mean i i i'm not very optimistic about getting in a, in a different framework to economic policy being pushed mm-hmm. through i think we can do things like the 600 a month i don't think is going to be changed like i think i think they're going to extend the, i think we probably will get an, a last minute extension and i really don't think that they're going to uh, change the six hundred dollar month, not least of which that would require big administrative changes at the state yeah. at the state level that mm-hmm. are not gone through. Like you know, I don't really talk about it much in the piece, but their suggestions in the, in the piece is like, well, we should do that by August, but but some states, by which we mean all states, won't be able to change their systems <laughs> by August, so we'll do it like the normal way until uh, until they get things changed at the end of the year. And I think that sort of like uh, hand waving. Uh, Let's cause another administrative nightmare on top of all the administrative nightmares that have already been <laughs> happening um, is not going to be actually something that gets a lot of play um, in terms of like state officials that are involved in this conversation and among among federal policymakers. So some of this stuff mm-hmm. is just like they're just pushing their economist shit without even really, you know, touchstoning the, the political reality of it. Like they, they, they seem like they can't save face among economists if they are like just outwardly supportive of the 600 a month. Um it's so funny. Yeah. Uh, thank like, God for COBOL. Social pressure <laughs> is more important than actually doing your job. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I mean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they care more. They care more about the economists than they do the politicians. 
you know they want they want to be serious among the among among the economists, and in the long run, their seriousness among pol- politicians requires their seriousness among among economists. Like that's actually where mm-hmm. their the, the, their social power comes in. If if someone you know if if someone is widely declared to be an, a, an embarrassment uh, to everyone, um, they're you know <laughs> that's you know that that harms them. I mean, you see this even now with you know the Trump. Council of Economic Advisors down to one mm-hmm. economic historian um, who, you know, got his PhD in 2014. Um, you know, there's there's this like counter move of like, you know, people being like, hey, stop being un- stop being, you know, unfair to the Trump administration CEA guy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, like, the, you know, there's a reason people make those kind of defenses. And it's because, you know, they want to hold the line. They don't want to make it OK to criticize someone for working in specific administrations mm-hmm. um, they, they mm-hmm. that it's a slippery slope um and which in some ways it is for them um right, for them, <laughs> right. For sure. and and so certainly you know, for everyone on this report yeah. <laughs> yeah and so you know that that you know that defense of that legitimacy among economists even if it harms harms them among politicians is is important i mean i think that's also why these plans, as pathetic as they are, are are so much more ambitious than what's getting talked about in Congress. Is that like, right. you know, as conservative as economists are, they have some sense of the reality of what you're facing with a depression, and they know you've got to do something big. Um, and so, you know, this is much bigger than what's being talked about elsewhere. And they they know they have to at least basically make a proposal this big in order to not get like laughed out of the room mm-hmm. among economists. We're, so, right. Whereas, whereas right. Congress has figured out that, it, that what makes you sound serious is by holding up a CBO report and saying, I you know, well, this doesn't get a good score. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, exactly. the best I thought the best uh, the the bet the the phrase that described this the best was in your quote of Alex Williams, where he he describes their um, their Medicaid proposal as finance anxiety, <laughs> which I just think is like kind of encapsulates the attitudes of these people that they just are just like really, really anxious about like what everybody else is going to think. And like that suddenly they like won't be taken seriously because I think they all secretly know that I don't know. The majority of what they do is unserious. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that that term is exactly right. There, there's an anxiety about big numbers, especially numbers big relative to GDP. And you know, journalists have this, you know, oh, well, one billion dollars—that's such a large amount of money. Um, <laughs> they like they're all literally their only comparison point is how much they're getting paid. So any like amount of like <laughs> loss, you know, which seen today about like, oh, one point four billion dollars of stimulus checks went to dead people. Oh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Similar hand wringing about incarcerated people, unfortunately, too. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the answer is just to pay every journalist a billion dollars so that when they report on these economic proposals, they they're the exact same class as them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Well, perhaps on that note, actually, <laughs> uh, I would I I would be remiss, I think, to uh, to let this conversation pass without us also, I think, talking just a little bit about um, and bringing it bringing in a little bit of background on sort of the the broader sort of cultural context of the Aspen Institute. Mm. Oh yes, um, thank you, yes, Artie. Glad that you glad <laughs> that we're going here. I think I think is best encapsulated by uh, obviously you know this is. Um, 
how to put it. We, we've joked a little bit about how, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of prestige on this paper in general. There's a lot of prestige, uh, names in the economic, uh, in, in this like economic, uh, advisory group in general within the Aspen Institute, but the Aspen Institute itself is a very, uh, strange and interesting beast i would say like first of all it's like an understatement yeah first of all it's like founded in the 50s uh by this guy i think i'm pronouncing this right walter pepke pepke who is basically like a box factory guy literally (laughs) um who cool uh who there's a i'm i'm gonna be all all the things that i'm just gonna bring in and i think just really quickly i wanted to ground this because i think this is probably the best indicator that i could find of like the vibe Mm -hmm. culture of this place um so all of this that i'm about to to bring forth is from an article called elevated discourse um, (laughs) from the university of chicago magazine in 2014 um um, so it it mentions there's there's a lot of background in here and i'm gonna focus more on oh i get it elevate elevated oh god i didn't get it (laughs) (laughs) it's at a high altitude how clever you are, uh, the writer. Sorry, let me do let me do another line of Hobbes before you uh, right before exactly you read this. Yeah, uh, get that free base going. So yeah. Um, so first of all, just uh, there's there's a lot of historical background in here. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over most of that and cover like what what it actually is talking about in the present day. But uh, I do want to mention that uh, talking about how they decided that at, that uh, Walter Pepke decided to like basically be central to reinvigorating. Uh, Aspen, which was an old silver mining town, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a whole other history. I'm sure that we could talk about with uh, Nathan, maybe some other time, but like there's a, there's a quote in here from a book called the Aspen idea Uh, quote. When Walter Pepke saw Aspen for the first time on Memorial day, 1945, the only mortal visible out of doors was a drunk and he was half dead. The Pepkeys stayed at the formerly Grand Hotel Jerome, <laughs> where the house drink four parts bourbon and one part milk was known as crud. Um, and so basically they, they sort of like rediscover essentially like in the late 1890s, the Aspen had like 12,000 people in it. It was a silver mining town. And then the federal government like stopped buying as much silver. Basically, the price went down um, and it bottomed out to like a thousand people in a year. It became a very poor, impoverished town. And now it's a site, as we all know, of like skiing, wealth and power. But uh, this so this article focuses uh, and sorry, I don't I don't want to feel like I'm monologuing too much. But this article focuses on essentially what is what became sort of the central uh, thing that the Aspen Institute was first known for, and they still do this, which is a seminar program uh, where people come from all around. They pay like $10,000 to participate in this. It's like 20, 30 people all together. Um, and they basically, they literally sit around and talk about Aristotle most of the time, uh, <laughs> other, other mm, yes, philosophical yes. texts. Um, I do think that the, the Silvertown thing, I don't know, if you ever read uh, Against the Day by Thomas Pynchon, that is oh, yeah. a plot element. I, I want to say that like a wealthy businessman founding a place where you talk about Goethe in a, an impoverished dead Colorado mining town is a plot point. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, I'm almost certain of it, except that it involves weird sex as well, right. uh, which I'm sure <laughs> this, to say that this didn't. Well. Yeah. This is the sanitized yeah. history. So they, they, they excluded the weird sex, but there definitely sure, is a sex look. ritual happening. Yeah, I was like, okay, it's 1949. You're in an abandoned mining town in Colorado talking about Goethe. Like, 
there's weird sex. Let's put it yeah. let's put it a different way. Yeah. Why is the CEO and his family in a weird silver mining town in the 1940s? What is happening? Right. Like what? When, when, when exactly. that just happened? Like when does the CEO just randomly? Oh, yeah, just I'm in an stop by. <laughs> just stop by. Let's see what's going on here. I would like to control right. this uh, this town for my own benefit, uh, for exactly. for a variety of reasons. Like you know, the, 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 there's there's definitely a, a, a unsanitized history there somewhere. Totally. So let's see. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read one particular section that I think is like very all all told. This kind of tells you almost everything that you need to know. Um, I think about at least the current culture climate. So the, again, this is from a 2014 article, and they basically this writer like went and attended like uh, this this seminar that happens uh, where again you know 20 30 people come and they. They talk about uh, various like philosophy texts. There's a whole aside where they're talking about like the ethics of like Aristotle's views on like slavery and self-determination. And it's all like uh, speaking about things in like business terms. Uh, but this this I think gets, <laughs> that discussion's gets, not gross at all. <laughs> anyway, so there's, there's a little bit further on where he, the, the author is talking to the people who 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 essentially facilitate this discussion. Uh, so I'm going to quote from this article. Aspen seminar moderators have a uh, have a secret tradition. Soon after they meet the participants, they try to guess who will be chosen by the group to play Antigone. All right, so they also at the end of this session they all together enact the play Antigone, or they enact Antigone oh, as a play. That's so weird. Um, so, uh, so the moderators have a secret tradition. They try to they try to guess who the group will choose to play Antigone. "Quote: We're usually right," says Gluck. Past Antigones have included Queen Nor of Jordan and Madeline Albright, both Aspen trustees. <laughs> this is just dweeb <laughs> Bohemian Grove. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lame version of Bohemian Grove. Um, well, uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Does if you it say asked, why Antigone? No. Just, yeah. I don't just, know. No reasoning? There's a the, the reason is probably one that you don't actually want to know. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Do they. Do they also all commit suicide at the end of the conference? Like, well, someone well, commits suicide at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, so uh, participants are given a great deal of latitude in their interpretation of Sophocles' play written circa 441 BCE. One group did it with sock puppets, says Gluck. Uh, oh quote, God. I've seen it a thousand different ways, but I've never seen it done badly. During this session, three different participants have been chosen to play Antigone. There are also three actors playing the roles of Antigone's Uncle Creon and an, and an unorthodox addition to the cast, Martin Luther King Jr. Titled A Tweet to Antigone, the play is a mashup with King's Letter they from Birmingham Hamilton? Jail. More or worse. <laughs> How do you mash up Antigone and Letter... How? You get a bunch how? of rich white people in a room. That's how you do yeah. it. Assuredly, exactly. assuredly, there is a version of this in which David Brooks raps. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, it's just, if you can dream it, why wouldn't it happen? He raps at some point. That's it, definitely like the monkeys on typewriters. Uh, oh my thing god! This, yeah. Jamie I mean, Dimon gives the up in passion speech against the white moderate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, I am like when, but when he's saying white moderate, he's thinking people who only want the Volcker rule like watered down <laughs> and not completely removed. <laughs> like that's what we got in his head. Mm. 
Anyway, so that's a treat. Yeah, I'm starting to become to obsessed with why it's Antigone. Yeah, I want to get to the bottom of this. I listeners, mean, if any of you can tell us, please. Is it because... If we have any listeners from within the Aspen Institute. I was just going to say, if anybody knows why it's Antigone, they're definitely not listening. We could certainly make some really rude uh, guesses, like because, I don't know, as a tragic character, she's uh, obsessed with one single idea that she does over and over again that is her downfall, maybe. Hmm. (laughs) Very economist. Can, Can we, like, put a cherry on the top of this by saying that, like... We all do know that the Aspen Institute received $8 million in federally backed small business loans yeah. under the Paycheck <laughs> Protection Program, right? We all know that, right? Yeah, they got a Paycheck Protection Program grant. <laughs> yeah. What? Speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, firms that might not survive the pandemic <laughs> and... I do want to throw in a little bit, which is, you know... They so they, they they say how they're against payroll protection and don't want to increase payroll protection, which is the dangerous and right. most dangerous and, mo- and worst part of the report. But they they're sane enough to know that they have to do something. But there's something is so bad that it's like it's breathtaking. There something is basically <laughs> just like the Fed decides who lives or dies with the mainstream <laughs> lending program. Like that's that is their like we'll just you know let the Main Street Lending Program will lend you whatever they'll decide which businesses are gonna survive and which not, um, which is like you know which, which is the extra absurdity about like let the price mechanism and let the market decide. Right. Yeah, people like, don't want to be distortionary, but the Fed can. Yeah, the <laughs> Fed, the Fed know the Fed knows the market. The Fed feels the market. The Fed sees the market. The Fed <laughs> is in tune with the market, and the Fed will pick the right businesses, which businesses will survive, and we'll find the optimal failure rate of businesses. Well, don't you think <laughs> I, on some level, on some level, that's just kind of a troll to their colleagues who are still currently part of the Fed? They're like, let's like let them do it. <laughs> let's make them do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, like a, it's like a hazing thing. No, yeah, no one at the Fed, uh, no one at the Fed uh, wants that. No, like no one, no one at the Fed is, you know, interested. Wants to be responsible for that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Fed, the Fed's already upset. It's doing the Main Street Lending Program. Like the Fed's already yeah. upset. It's in that space. And the idea that like th- th- we're just going to have an explicit policy where they decide uh, which businesses survive or die, and then Congress just yells at them about all the businesses they let die and which businesses okay, they right. chose to survive. Each each business has to play the part of Antigone, <laughs> and whichever one does it best. I don't know. Oh I'm starting God. to think that it must have to do with maybe the sort of like, are we going to respect the law of God or are we going to respect the law of man question in Antigone? And I want to know which one the Aspen Institute thinks it is in that scenario. You know, are they coming together Ooh. to do the divine work that supersedes what the government is actually doing? Is that is that their mission, you think? I'm starting to get very <laughs> paranoid about this whole place. Like just thinking about like the sort of general narrative building that's happening as as these powerful people sit on their knees 
playing with sock puppets. Right. I mean, that's actually a good point because I know I said I wasn't necessarily going to uh, talk about the like the the whole Aristotle thing, but this exchange actually is also really telling. So if I can actually bring it back to this <laughs> one uh, more <laughs> elevated one more yeah. thing from Let's this elevated one more one more dip. Yeah. Um, okay. So so ba- basically, they're like discussing uh, Aristotle and and like hierarchy. So uh, some ugliness comes through in Aristotle, though, who makes a number of unpleasant assertions about the position of women and slaves in society. Quote, he's not a feel-good kind of guy. Look, <laughs> the moderator notes. They, they say, the moderator says, we need to ask whether hierarchy is natural. And if we don't think it's natural, what do we think it is? Uh, another person jumps in, uh, quote, here's Aristotle saying hierarchy is natural in order for him to be contemplative. And here we all are sitting around being contemplative. Unquote. Betsy, founder of a digital education nonprofit, points out literally meaning like, well, we're we're elites. Mm. Uh, We're sitting around (laughs) and being contemplative. Uh, Jason, CEO of an organization. These are all like uh, assumed names, by the way. Uh, Jason, CEO of an organization that supports charter schools, whom Gluck affectionately calls the cynic in chief at one point laughs wickedly. Does he think the master slave relationship is natural? Asks Patricia, founder of a nonprofit that helps minority students pursue careers in science, technology, engineering and math. (laughs) Only when it's by heritage, says Javier. Or Javier, uh, CEO of a Brazilian restaurant chain. Quote, you're a slave by nature. Jim, a direct marketing executive, reads from some of the text. Quote, from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. Unquote. He does, he does no other work here. He just sort of states it. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, um, I think they I think they're the gods. They think they're the gods. Yeah, I've I've made the decision. I've asked this like on this podcast like many times before, but like at what point in that conversation, like, like, are you reasonably expected to be like, wait, guys, I think we're the bad guys here. (laughs) Like, oh, never, never, (laughs) not once. That's what the puppets are for. It's very important in narrative form that the villain thinks they're the good guy. (laughs) (laughs) It just just feels like you get to the point of absurdity when you're like. Yes, we will do the evil thing so that the good thing might happen. It's just like the thing is, you, you might you might have that consideration in the seventies or eighties when there's like an enemy that in the and the enemy might still prevail. But I think I think like elite ideology has basically just gone haywire since the early nineties, where you know mm-hmm. they won, they won, and there's no like conceivable like like attacks of their power. And I think like feeling like you're at the, you know, you're, you're fundamentally at the end of history, like, or even just not the end of history, just like at the end of challenge, um, (laughs) like at the end of like uh, any sort of adversity for elites, um, that like, there's just, you, things sort of just go haywire and people just like form all these weird sets of beliefs that like make it so that there's no way that could be wrong because they're winning. Like winning is, is is right and the, and there's an illusion of risk that they've taken like especially if you go through the private sector if you're like you know i started a startup or like <laughs> you know i worked really hard i worked eight hours a week to work my way up a bank and to the top or like <laughs> i you know i worked you know i worked so hard studying you know for my harvard law degree and blah 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 like there's <laughs> there's a narrative of hard work that has been tied to being an elite that didn't necessarily exist mm-hmm. before that and and that and even though it's not like weighted to like actually what hard work is for like 
people who aren't in the elite, they're just sort of they're able. You know, it's easy to tell in labor where I've worked hard and I'm a winner, and these other people are just losers. And and that and there's a sense like you know any sort of historical analog. Well, those people lost, so they're weak and suck. Um, and then even people you can say point to historically things that they did shitty, like you know early 20th century Robert Barons. Well, if you're if you're in the elite now, you can be like, yeah, but look at the Carnegie Foundation, or look at the Ford Foundation, or look at this mm-hmm. foundation, and look at all the good work that they do. So, I mean, I think there's just like a you know, they've sort of almost perfected the ideological apparatus around them that protects them from those sorts of like, I mean, dangerous thoughts. And then, I mean, quite obviously, right. They can find ways of coming in after massive devastation and destruction and effectively get people coming and going in the sense that they, in addition to providing the ideas that generate the destruction in the first place, are able to generate things that seem like uh, remediation and like the opioid epidemic could be one example of this. Um, you know, any number of economic or even natural disasters would be another example, but like it's, I, I definitely think that the fact that it's like there's, there's not only an unboundedness in the sense that there are no more dragons to be defended against, but there's also a new quest, a new adventure, which is how can we, uh, through through sort of economic adventurism, uh, monetize every solution to uh, a social problem or a social yeah. ill. <laughs> There's so much market making opportunity. I mean, if you fix yeah. everything, then how are we going to pay Timothy Geithner twelve hundred dollars an hour to consult to fix things? <laughs> right? Yeah. We can't fix things. He'll be out of work. We have to protect his livelihood, folks. Mm-hmm. He's got to sock puppet Antigone. Yeah. I mean. With with that, this this might be like a good place to sort of wrap out our our conversation. Is there anything else we want to get into? Do we do we not roast someone we should roast? I think I think we're pretty good. Uh, I think we're, yeah. we're pretty toasty. Uh, yeah, I'll plug you know I'll plug again the fifty percent discount for death pan, uh, for death panel listeners. Oh, yeah, uh, nice. Nathan dash death panel. And Hell yeah. I guess one one last element is to say what I, what I hope is the is uh, the song for this, um, which I proposed uh, oh, yeah. song last time, but now it's way more appropriate for this. It's so yeah. much more perfect. Yeah, uh, I'm glad, glad we, we held it. Yeah, glad we held it. Which is uh, which is um, a student of Glenn Hubbard making uh, a, a a parody song um, based on him. Uh, not getting the Federal Reserve chairmanship in 2006. <laughs> hey, uh, ben Bernanke diss track, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it is extremely really painful, horrifying. but but you need to hear it, listeners. And isn't <laughs> is Glenn Hubbard in the video? No, it's it's or is he, that just like oh, is it's a music video? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a music video component. This yeah. Hurts. Oh yeah. This hurts me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we highly, oh. highly recommend. Yeah. That um, will. That will in fact be the outro track. By the way, <laughs> we are. We, that is. That was already predetermined this morning. <laughs> but yeah. Um. But yeah, we highly, highly recommend giving Nathan's newsletter a sub. It is incredibly helpful and very, very entertaining as well. I'd say. You know. You're very talented writer. In addition, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. It's funny because everyone I recommend it to, who like, who has sort of been like a little like 
wary at first. They're like, well, it's an, it's an economics newsletter. Like, really? I don't, I don't think I'm going to get it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, pro- I, I promise. Please yeah. just trust me. Within 72 hours, they're like, I have just read half of it. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I feel like I understand economics now. But... Uh, never could be higher praise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's nathantankus.substack.com and code death panel, right? For, for a very generous discount. Thank you. I'm sure listeners will very appreciate that because it's not like they're going to be getting another $1,200 check in the mail. Anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> or their unemployment benefits extended. Uh, well, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. hopefully. As Nathan we'll mentioned. see. We'll see. And if you want to support our show, you can visit patreon.com slash death panel pod and go ahead and become a subscriber to our Patreon. You get access to a second episode every week and a super secret patron only chat in the discord. Mm-hmm. Um, and also patrons get a special discount on merch in the merch store, which if you become a patron, you'll get an email that has that super secret code in there. Very special and code. And we, we send you stickers and stuff, and it's yeah. fun. It's yeah. good. Antigone sock puppets. Yeah, you get to play Antigone um, <laughs> for an audience of one in your own home, and we will not be watching, but that's okay. Whoever our 350th patron is will get um, a scroll written in blood we'll do of Antigone. Antigone. For you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, offer valid only in the 50 states. Asterisk, not really. But yeah. That's such um, a weird piece of merch. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, we, we just, uh, it's our gimmick. What can I say? Weird merch, right? Yeah. Like a, yeah. Like a bucket hat. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you can't make what it to other Aspen po- this year, go to our Discord server. And I honestly, guess. what other podcast could you be a fan of and also have a bucket hat for? Just us. Just us. And that's Probably all Vince's 538. fault. <laughs> just, just wow, PT already? Cruiser not included. <laughs> Smash Mouth album not included oh with Bucket Hats. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think with that, um, that about does it for this episode. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on again. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Anytime. We always love to hang. You can follow Nathan at Nathan Tankus, T A N K U S, on Twitter. And um, you can, as always, follow us at Death Panel underscore on twitter as well and i think with that that about does it for this episode thank you all for listening solidarity forever and stay alive another week or all try right. i guess see ya cool bye <laughs> stay Yay. alive until your next 600 dollars payment every breath you take every change of rate Jobs you don't create while we still stack fleet. I'll be watching you every single day. Bernanke takes my pay when growth goes away. Inflation will stay, and I'll be watching you. Oh, can't you see the fades where I should? I'll be watching you
is great, wouldn't change my fate, but we'll be 